welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganauer, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm checking in with Maxim Yali, head of the Centre for a New World Order and Professor of International Relations at the National Aviation University in Kyiv. Thanks for talking to me today, Maxim. You're welcome, Jessica. We've seen in recent days quite a parade of European leaders who have come to Kyiv to meet with Zelensky. We had, first of all, the Italian, Romanian, German and French leaders. And shortly after that, Boris Johnson from the United Kingdom. What's the message that's being sent to the Ukrainian population by these visits? Well, let's differentiate these two visits. Of course, French, German, Italy, and Romanian leaders came all together during one day. And the next day, Boris Johnson, the prime minister of UK, visited. So firstly, as for European Union leaders, let's put them this way. Of course, it had a symbolic meaning because, for example, the German chancellor came to Ukraine for the first time after he became a chancellor in Germany. Besides, there were a lot of rumors that uh, he didn't want to visit uh, Ukraine earlier because probably it was not proved officially. Ukrainian officials, uh, President Zelensky, didn't want the president of Germany, Mr. Steinmeier, uh, to visit Kiev because of his uh, pro-Russian moods and policy while he was uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Germany and uh, the president of Germany before the full-scale invasion. So it showed that these contradictions are already in the past and uh, taken into account that uh, Germany is the biggest economy in EU and uh, the most important actor, I would say, in politics. Of course, it was very important. Besides, as you know, Ukrainian population and authorities uh, were not uh, satisfied with the delay of uh, military assistance from Germany. Uh, Altogether, it was important uh, because in coming days, there are going to be an EU summit on which the status of candidate of Ukraine will be decided. These uh, statements of European leaders, and uh, these are the most important uh, countries, particularly uh, Germany and France, uh, their voices are very important. Italy also is one of the biggest uh, European states. So taken all together, these signals were quite important and positive. Besides, after Chancellor Scholz visited Kiev, he changed his attitude to military assistance and he said that Ukraine shouldn't stand in the line of those who are waiting for the weapons. It should be number one. To come to visit of Boris Johnson and why he decided to visit Kiev once again just after these European leaders visited it. Of course, it is connected and important because he wanted to get to know what they were promising. Position of Great Britain is different. They support Ukraine and Zelensky that this war should be finished only with the victory of Ukraine. 
particularly deoccupation of uh, the territories and uh, withdrawal of Russian army. I guess uh, these are the main results. So, Maxim, we've seen, at least I've heard reports, that more and more weapons from Western countries are actually making it to the front lines in Ukraine. However, I'm hearing some conflicting reports, you know, that some weapons are arriving, some are delayed, some are taking time and not have not yet arrived. And I'm wondering whether we're actually starting to see a difference on the battlefield in terms of weapons that are now accessible to Ukrainian fighters who are there on the battle lines, able to use those weapons. Are we starting to see a difference in the trajectory of the battle there and also the kinds of costs that now Ukraine is able to impose on the Russian forces there in Donbass? Yes, uh, we receive uh, constantly military equipment uh, and unfortunately this proportion in artillery 10 to 1 hasn't changed much because of course we are also losing some weapons yes uh, in battlefield on the battlefield and in fights which are very heavy in Luhansk Oblast and in Donbass uh, in Donetsk region as we can see from the battlefield unfortunately the situation hasn't changed it helps us this assistance to slow i would say the uh, attacks and the moves and occupation of new territories for example severodonetsk is the key point now it's in lugansk it's and lisichansk are two of the only uh, towns which are left uh, non-occupied uh, completely because in uh, Severodonetsk, most of it is is still occupied by Russians. So uh, it's not enough for us to counterattack and uh, to change. In the East, uh, the situation hasn't uh, changed uh, much. In the South, uh, we have some successes. In Kherson region, particularly, our troops came closer to Kherson. It's about 10, 15 kilometers away. We have some positive results. In all front line, it's more than 1,000 kilometers. And I'm not talking about deoccupation in the coming, not only weeks, but even months of occupied territories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know Ukraine is suffering huge losses in terms of lives and obviously other costs. But it does puzzle me a little bit that surely, I mean, by any account, Russia is suffering huge losses as well in terms of soldiers' lives. And I don't know if it's just that those losses, that information is not really getting back into the Russian domestic context. But I wonder whether you think that there will be a point where those costs will become unacceptable to the Russian population, given that Russia isn't fighting for their own territory, like they're not fighting on their own state to defend their own land the way Ukrainians are. So, of course, Ukrainians, whilst those losses are very painful, you know, kind of understand there isn't another choice. But for Russia, it is a war of choice. So I wonder whether you think that those mounting costs for Russia will have an impact at some stage. These... uh... Losses due to all military analysts are not enough. 
Besides, you know, Russian propaganda reassured Russian people. First of all, they don't tell all the truth. They don't show the losses even which they have. They didn't. They don't even take back uh, dead bodies. You know, for example, uh, that Moskva. Yes, even now they don't admit the deaths of those who were on that uh, ship. And uh, there are a lot of scandals when parents are writing letters to the Ministry of Defense and they say, your son wasn't there. It's like, though he was, though he's sure and he knew he was. There are two, for example, ways. As it was in 2014-2015, when the losses were much less, how they hid them. They buried them unofficially, it was uh, unfamiliar graves, and uh, they just paid money to the relatives and, and uh, told them, if you say something that your son was killed in Ukraine, you will not get the money. Besides, as you know, the strategy of Russians, they mobilize and uh, send uh, Russian soldiers from the poorest regions of Russia. Therefore, Though the losses are heavy and uh, there are more and more of them, still people are, are ready for it. They don't contradict because they are, free, they are afraid not to get money. And besides, a lot of those volunteers uh, go to the war to earn money. So it's the only way from, for example, Buryatia, it's such a region, it's ethnic group. And uh, it's uh, the poorest region in Russia. And it's about, for example, 20,000 rubles, uh, the average salary. And uh, yeah, they are promised to get uh, 200,000 rubles or even 50,000. And they go. So that's uh, the only way for them to earn money because uh, there is no job, etc., etc. And uh, they mobilize, as I mentioned, from the most depressive regions of Russia. We should realize uh, that uh, due to this strategy and uh, the situation on battlefields, it will not help. Well, thanks, Maxim. Talk to you again soon. You're welcome, Jason. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode.